You are listening to Sermon Audio from Providence Baptist Church. Be sure to check out pbcfrankfort.org for more information. If you have a Bible, I'd like you to turn to Hebrews 8. Hebrews 8. We're getting there, folks. Just, just last week we were in one, right? No, yeah, okay, I see it. I see you. Hebrews 8, we're going to be dealing with the first six verses today. As you're turning there, you know what to say, right? We want to know Jesus better. We want to love Jesus more. We want to serve Jesus greater. We're going to take just a moment here, and I kind of want to recap really uh, quick these first seven chapters that we've been walking through all these past months. Chapters 1 and 2 are that opening Shot that opening salvo from the uh, from the author of Hebrews about the supremacy of Jesus Christ, greater than every prophet, greater than every priest, uh, residential as king over all all creation, but also intimately connected with mankind, made like us, different yes, but made like us in that intimate connection that he has uh, with us. Chapters three and four. Uh, saw the author comparing uh, Jesus and Moses and Jesus being greater than Moses. Moses, arguably, uh, among some of the Jewish faith, the greatest Jewish person to ever live. And so the call to understand that Jesus is even greater than him, than him. Uh, the call to persevere in obedient faith, even through tough times and difficult circumstances. And at the end of chapter 4 in that segment, the promise of help that we can approach that throne of grace with confidence in our time of need. Chapters 5 and 6, the challenge of growing in maturity, of growing in spiritual maturity, not being content to just stay on milk, but to move. And, of course, that's all in uh, in application of the teaching that would come in Chapter 7 about Melchizedek, understanding that to really get into some of the tougher, deeper Places in Scripture, we have to have a call on our lives to grow in maturity so we can understand, so we can apply. And, and of course, there was also that warning passage there in those two chapters of what could happen should someone choose to fall away from the faith. But a promise of hope there at the end of chapter 6, that Jesus is that anchor of hope that we have. And then, of course, chapter 7, where we've been for the last four weeks or so, the comparison of Jesus to that mysterious Melchizedek, the, how they differed, how they, uh, the commonalities that they shared, uh, not, neither of them being from the tribe of Levi, yet serving as a priest, um, uh, Melchizedek serving as priest and king, which would foreshadow Jesus' position there, and then coupled with, towards the end of chapter 7, that promise of Jesus and his heavenly forever intercession for us. And so chapter 8 begins a a pivotal turn, taking all that he's written about Jesus and beginning to turn to a discussion that we're going to see over chapters 8, 9, and 10, a discussion of what it means that we are now in this new covenant that is secured for us through Christ. Chapter 7 gave us a little, a little preview or foreshadowing of that. If, you, if you've got it open and want to look there with me, chapter 7, begin verse 20. As he's talking about Jesus being made a priest, he said, It was not without an oath, for those formerly became priests were made without an oath. This one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, being the Father, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. And this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better 
covenant. And so coming off of that, we're going to enter here into chapter 8 and over the next few months of chapter 8, 9, and 10 and this understanding of what it means that we now reside in this better, greater covenant with God through Jesus Christ. So if you want to follow along with me, chapter 8, 1 through 6. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, that is, thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. If he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But, that, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises." Now, I've got quite a bit of scripture today to tie into this piece of scripture. Um, so some I'm going to be just referencing, some I'm going to be reading. I just encourage you to, to jot down in, either in your Bibles or there in the bulletin. There's space to jot down there, but to make marks of these different passages and to read over them this week on your own as we begin to see what it means that we have this great high priest who is now the mediator of this great covenant. And the first point I want us to see today then comes from verses 1 and 2, and it's a very simple statement in your bulletin. We have Jesus. We have Jesus. Nearly all the translations say something along the lines of the point or the main point or the sum of, of what we've been saying. The author is speaking as if he's speaking to his audience. The sum of everything, the point of everything that I've written to this point through chapter 7, and it does us well to be reminded that the letters didn't come with chapter and verse. That was put later, later on for our reading um, benefit. But he's saying everything I've written in this letter up to this point boils down to this, that we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent the Lord set up, not man. We have Jesus. Jesus who is greater than all the prophets, Jesus who is greater than all the priesthood, Jesus who reigns as king, Jesus who is the son of the living God. We have Jesus. And one commentary this week put it this way, very simply. He, the author, speaks as if nothing more could be needed, nothing more wished. We have Jesus. And again, if you consider the context of this letter and the audience, the original audience it's written to, uh, presumably Jewish Christians torn by persecution, torn by being ostracized within their community for turning to, to Christ and away from their faith, wanting, wanting something else, but really the something else they wanted was to go backwards, to go, go back where they felt more comfortable, to go back where they felt more assured, go back where they felt maybe more empowered, and to that, the author is saying, but we have Jesus. 
We have Jesus. There's no need for you to go back. There's no need for you to desire for anything more. We have Jesus and all of his love and all of his grace and all of his mercy and his forgiveness and his, his sacrifice for our sins and the new life that he brings us. We have Jesus. That simple little verb, have. This one in particular when it's translated into the English have, is a word that doesn't just mean I have possession of. It doesn't just mean that I'm, I've taken possession of something. This is a word that describes an intimate, personal relationship, in this case, with Jesus. Deeper than just owning something. Deeper than just having something in yourself. I have golf clubs. I have Funko Pops. I have clothing, I have a car, but in all those things I'm not intimately or personally connected and, and intricately designed in my relationship with those things. Those things can come and go as they please and often do, don't they, in our very materialistic world. But this is to have Jesus. We have such a high priest. We are intimately, intimately connected with him, personally connected with him. To, to give you a contrast, I want to show you two negative examples of this word so we can see a contrasting point of view. In Matthew chapter 3, John the Baptist is preparing the way for Jesus. In beginning of verse 7, it says, When he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers. That's not very correct politically, is it? You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Do not presume to say for yourselves, and this is the key, we have Abraham as our father. In other words, he says to them, don't presume to say to yourselves, just because you're religious people, just because you're leaders in Israel, don't presume to say that you have an intimate connection with your father, Abraham, and we would know through the rest of the Gospels, the reason was they were not following the pattern of Abraham. They were not following the truth of Abraham. So in a negative sense, he tells them, don't, don't even consider yourself to have this relationship. In John 19, for another example, beginning in verse 14, Pilate has brought Jesus out before the crowd, and he's, he's asking them who they want to be crucified he tells them at the end of verse 14, Behold your king. And it says, They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. And using that particular word for possession, what they're saying is, We don't have an intimate personal relationship with this Jesus fella, but us and Caesar, we're tight. And understand the point of this, that for you and I, those of us who are made new in Christ, who share in his life, who share in the power of the Holy Spirit, whose sins have been forgiven, who've been put on a new journey and a new path to be made more like him, according to the end of Romans 8, we have Jesus. He's not just something that we take possession of and put up on a shelf and just admire from a distance. We are to be connected with him we are to be engaged with him and we have him this great high priest and what is it that he does end of verse 2 going into verses 3 and following 
He's a minister in the holy places. In the true tent, the Lord set up, not man. Look at verses 3 through 5. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifice, thus it's necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. If he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. Your second point today is that this Jesus serves as priest in the heavens. He serves as priest for you and me in the heavens. He's not confined to a building. He's not confined to a a local place on this earth anymore. He is serving as priest for us right directly in the presence of God. When, when, he, when Matthew records Jesus' death in Matthew 27 and he gives his spirit up, Matthew tells us that the temple, the, the huge veil, the huge curtain, if you will, uh, that, that some scholars suggest may have weighed in all of its segments put together, may have weighed well over three, 400 pounds. Some saying that it had the thickness of, of a fist. This was no, uh, this was no throwaway tablecloth. That when Jesus died, that temple veil was torn in two. A symbolic, real moment that signified that because of the work of Christ, now man had direct access to God. In Hebrews, he referenced this. If you want to look back at chapter 6 really quick, if you've got your Bibles open there. And this is what he says as he talks about that hope at the end of chapter 6. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone on a forerunner on our behalf. What did it mean to enter the holy place? What did it mean to enter into that space that was behind that curtain that separated it? It meant to enter into the very presence of God. That when God gives Moses the initial requirements for building the tabernacle that would then go on to be the temple, that what God says is, I want you to build it just like I'm asking you to. Exodus chapter 25 is the first place of it. Um, In in Stephen's speech in chapter 7 of the book of Acts, he references it. That Moses built this directly according to the pattern and the plan that God gave him. But as he built it, what happens? It says here, it was a copy or a shadow. Look at verse 5. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly place that Jesus now resides. A, a copy is just that impression or that image of something original. That shadow is something that gives the representation of something else. You're, you're walking through your house and you see a shadow and you jump because you know there's something there. You just don't know what that something is. And what the author's telling us is that everything that, that was built according to God's plan was a copy and a shadow of what was to come. And in the book of Acts, when uh, Stephen is having that moment where he's just saying this incredible speech of the history of Israel and the history of God and what he's done, he says in verse 48, after talking about in the preceding verses that Moses had made this tent, this tabernacle, as God directed him to, he says this, beginning in verse 48, Yet the Most High does not dwell 
in houses made by hands. The prophet says, heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me? Or what is the place of my rest, says the Lord? Did not my hand make all these things? See, there's a, there's a movement. There's a movement away from the Old Testament priesthood. There's a movement away from the law-based way of trying to be good enough to be in God's presence. There's a movement away from this constructed temple, this place where God resides. And the movement is that in Jesus we have this Jesus who lives and is ministering, interceding on our behalf in the heavens right there next to God because he is there in that most holy of places. And even further, 1 Corinthians 6, Paul would tell us that our very bodies have now become the temple, the indwelling place of the Holy Spirit of God. See, there's this movement, and, and all of this, this shadow and this copy points to the cross, and it points to the work of Jesus on the cross, and it points to the continuation of this arisen Jesus who's now interceding on our behalf in the work in the heavens. When the Ark of the Covenant was made, you can read about it in uh, Exodus 25, uh, Leviticus 6, or 16, excuse me, Numbers 7. When the Ark was made, there was this piece on the, the top of the Ark of the Covenant called the mercy seat. And what God said was, there will I meet you. He told Moses that's where he would meet Moses to give him instructions for the people of Israel, the, the high priest that would enter and, and make sacrifice on the Day of Atonement. God would meet him there. The blood of the sacrifice would be sprinkled or applied to the mercy seat. And there's this beautiful passage in Romans chapter 3 where uh, Paul writes this. You, you know Romans 3.23 uh, well. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But listen to what else he says after that. All sin and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption in Christ Jesus who God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. You say, what is propitiation? It is simply the New Testament word for mercy seat. It is the correlation that Christ has fulfilled all that was before him and fulfilled it in a greater manner because his blood is being applied to the mercy seat of our souls, if you want to use that kind of terminology, and it is applied there forever. He is interceding on our behalf. We have Jesus. And so what does it look like where Jesus is? What does it look like? That, I mean, again, the, the author of Hebrews says it this way, Verse 2, he's a minister in the holy places. He says that, that he's, he's obtained a, a, the, the copy, the shadow of the heavenly things. All of this is going to be explained out even more as we get into the rest of 8, 9, and 10. But well, what does the heavenly tabernacle look like? When Moses was instructed to build it, when Solomon built it into the, the existing temple, and it was built after the pattern that God displayed to Moses on the mountain, what does it look like? Well, I would say to you that it looks more like purpose than it does structure. The tabernacle, the temple, was the place where they met God. 
the place where the high priest met God to make intercession, to, uh, to bring the sacrifice, to obtain forgiveness. And it was the place that they met God. It was also the place for worship. It was also the place to come and to worship the Lord. And we say, well, what does it look like in the heavens? I, 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 I'm going to let John give us a glimpse of that out of Revelation 5, beginning verse 6. Between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing. <laughs> As though it had been slain. With seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then I looked and I heard around the throne the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. You want to know what the holy place in the heavens look like? You want to know what it looks like where Jesus is right now? It is a place of unbridled worship. It is a place of unfettered Glory. And that he intercedes for us. That he is there in the presence of God serving as this new high priest, this perfect high priest that we so desperately need. As he is receiving worship, he is also serving us. He is serving you. He is serving me as high priest. And all of this moves to moving away from copy and moving away from shadow and moving to the reality of Jesus and who he is and his work and where he is. And what it does is it moves us to have Jesus become the center and the focal point of our worship. We typically call worship this time from 11 to 1230-ish. That's what we call worship. I'm going to go to worship today. We're going to have a worship service. But do you understand that in the New Testament, although they gathered for singing and they gathered for teaching and they gathered for study and fellowship, it's never referred to as a worship service because it wasn't confined to one place on the earth any longer. It wasn't confined to a tabernacle. It wasn't confined to a temple. It didn't have to be in a house made by men. The worship that goes on in our lives on a daily basis is the worship that's being reflected where Jesus is serving us because he becomes the focal point. He becomes our point of orientation. 
And our lives are supposed to be worship of him. It's a transition from come to the temple and here to go and make and teach and worship. I've had two pastoral experiences, very different, well, three, actually, in, in my life. The first two were both in church plant settings. And if you're unfamiliar with that terminology, all that means is that for a period of time or a duration of time, we were in a church that was brand new from the ground up and didn't have a building. The first one I was in, we met in a middle school gymnasium for eight years on Sunday mornings. Rented every spare business that we could find in Lawrenceburg for youth ministry and children's ministry and married couples ministry. Had small groups in our homes. Had Sunday school in the cafeteria. And then in Arizona, the same deal. A shorter amount of time, but meeting in the elementary school and, and, and doing things in our homes and our neighborhoods. Why? Because the Spirit of God is not confined to a building. Now, I have now this experience with a fantastic building, a great fellowship hall, all kinds of room for us to be doing a lot more than we're doing. But he's still not confined here. The point of it is that if Jesus is our focus, it matters not whether you have building or not. If Jesus is our focus of worship, if we're looking to him as this high priest who is seated at the right hand of God, who is being served by our worship and simultaneously serving us, let the walls crumble in or let them be expanded, he's still the same. And he's still deserving of our worship. And it's not just worship that occurs here. It's worship that Paul describes in Romans chapter 12, no longer being conformed to the world, but being transformed by your mind, by your spirit, by your body, by the, by the Holy Spirit of God. That is your spiritual act of worship. So it's saying to the one who serves us from the heavenlies, take my thoughts, take my actions, take my deeds, take my words, take everything there is about me and let my whole being and my whole life be in worship to you. Every minute of every day. And what he tells us in verse 6 is the last point today, that this Jesus is the greater promise. Look again at verse 6. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it's enacted on better promises. As I said in 8, 9, and 10, we're going to be looking at this old to new covenant transition. But I just want to bring this out to you today. Look again at verse 4, if you will. It says of this Jesus that we have who's ministering in the heavenlies, now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all. If he were on earth, he wouldn't meet the qualifications of the law. Wasn't from the tribe of Levi, wasn't the descendant of Aaron. If he were on earth, he wouldn't qualify to serve in that realm. But, oh, here's a reminder, that role of priesthood was insufficient. That role of priesthood didn't make the difference in us that didn't change us from the inside out. And now because we have Jesus, this high priest that serves in the heavenlies, 
now his intercession in heaven is better than anything any earthly priest could ever have offered. What used to happen once a day on the Day of Atonement, access to God through the high priest, now happens 24-7, 365 days a year for any who are willing to take hold of it. That on a daily basis, that when you come to the end of your day and you go, oh my gosh, let me count my sins, we're reminded that as we were sinning, he was applying his blood to the mercy seat. That as we were messing up, as we were falling back into old ways, or as we were experiencing new ways, he was interceding and serving us on that behalf. And that is the continual work of his, and it is a continual work for all who are his sons and daughters. And because Jesus serves in that way, every man, woman, boy, and girl, regardless of age, who is with Christ, has him as their great high priest. I've said this before, but I think it works again today. I certainly don't mind praying. <laughs> and and if you have me to your house and you're having a big meal and right before the meal you say, Pastor, will you pray? I'll pray. But do you remember a few weeks back when we were in Hebrews and they talked about the old high priest and how they were beset with weaknesses? I'm just the same as you. I'm in need of this Jesus as much as you are. He intercedes for me. He serves me just as he serves you. And there is no specialness to my prayer that you can't offer of yourself. Because he has done that for you. I'll be glad to pray, but you have access to that. You have access to the one who's continually applying his blood that was sacrificed on the cross to that mercy seat to forgive and to empower and to change. And this is going to be the story over the next three chapters. That Christ's work has ushered in this new covenant. In the Old Testament book of Habakkuk, Habakkuk starts off in the first couple of verses, and he's not very happy. He sees a lot of stuff going on around him that he doesn't understand, and honestly, if you really look at the way he speaks, it's really like he's just accusing God of abandoning them. But in Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 5, God begins his answer this way. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe. If told, a new work that was coming in the form of Jesus Christ and the new covenant he ushered in. See, understand this, because it was new didn't mean the original message was altered. God had always loved the world. God had always purposed means and ways by which man could access him and could know his truth and know the presence of his spirit. God had always had redemption and salvation in mind. But all that was before Jesus was a copy and shadow of what would be to come. Sometimes we get stuck in old, don't we? We don't need to be afraid of new it was new for Jesus to bring in a new covenant. It was new to include the Gentiles in the kingdom. 
It was new to take the message of the kingdom out of Jerusalem and into unknown lands. It was new to teach radical ways of following Jesus, things like forgiving enemies, loving unconditionally, and being full of grace and mercy. It was new to define family no longer by DNA and human bloodline, but to now define family as covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. We have this Jesus who serves us in the heavens, the most holy and the highest of places because of the great promise and word of God. Does that change you? Does it change me? I'm just going to speak very openly and honestly. If it doesn't at least twinge us somehow, I mean, we might want to check for a pulse. One of the commentaries that I read this week said this, the solution to the spiritual challenge the Hebrew Jews were facing was to present the supremacy of the Lord Jesus Christ who is in every way better. You feel a little spiritually lethargic these days? Feel a little down? Feel a little bit like the whole world's crashing? Feel a little bit like you don't know where you're going? Or you don't know what you're going to do when you get there? The solution is Jesus. Nothing else. He's not confined to this place. He's not confined to this moment. He is alive and interceding and serving on our behalf in the most holy of holiest places at God's very side. What would you do with that Jesus? Thanks for listening. If you have any thoughts, questions, or prayer concerns, please email us at pbcfrankfurt at gmail.com.